Welcome to the Trauma Talks Returning Citizen Roundtable. Our guests today are Shaka Senghor, Elder Jackson III, Jason Bryant, and Robert Mosqueda, all returning citizens, all great men, and we're gonna talk about today about our childhood trauma. So I'm looking forward to sharing this with you. Welcome to the Compassion Prison Project Returning Citizen Roundtable in our show called Trauma Talks. Um, so let's start with Shaka. Can you check in, please? Hey, how's it going? I'm Shaka Singor. I served 19 years in Michigan prison. I've been out for 10 years now, a little over 10 years, coming up on my 11th year. I am a writer, a tech investor, and a tech executive currently. Great. Thank you, Shaka. Robert, can you check in, please? Hi, my name is Robert Mosqueda. I have been in and out of incarceration for about 11 years. I am currently coming on my 10th year of being out of incarceration. Um, and I have dedicated myself to education, um, gang intervention, and currently I am working um, to identify and get resources to our homeless youth. Thank you. And how are you feeling today? I'm feeling well. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Uh, Jason, will you check in, please? Sure. Hello, everyone. My name is Jason Bryant. I served uh, 20 years and three months in prison. Uh, first time offender. I was 20 years old and I was incarcerated. And I have been out of prison for the last 10 months. Uh, on March 27th of last year, uh, largely in part to uh, some of the positive work I was involved in while incarcerated, Governor Newsom uh, commuted my sentence and ordered both me and my co-defendants immediate release from prison. So uh, today I work as the director of restorative programs for the nonprofit crop organization, and we're working to help reimagine reentry uh, through creating a holistic program that addresses uh, people's need coming home from prison uh, to have the necessary work skills, job placements, and housing components uh, to ensure that they succeed upon reentry. Uh, and today I'm feeling incredibly blessed and uh, just grateful to be a part of this conversation with you all. Thank you, Jason. And Eldra Jackson III, please check in. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. <clears throat> and first of all, welcome home, Jason, and congratulations. Uh, my name is Elder Jackson III, and I served 24 years of a life sentence in the California prison system. I have been home a little over uh, six years now, and I currently serve as co-executive director of uh, Inside Circle, an organization that I credit with uh, finding me and, and helping save my life. And what we do today with Inside Circle is continue to support the men inside, as well as youth across this country, uh, particularly in New Jersey, to uh, gain a second chance at a first class life. And I am feeling truly inspired today. Thank you. And Shaka, I don't think we felt we found out how you were feeling. I feel amazing. Uh, so I'm, I'm home right now. My son is in there on Zoom school. And uh, it's a great day to be a dad. He just passed one of his tests, so he was really excited, which makes me excited. So I'm pretty good. It's Friday as well, so that's there's always that. And welcome home, Jason. Um, 
so happy that you got your freedom again and it's a blessing for sure. So the purpose of this roundtable is to bring this program into prisons and to give the people that are viewing this program a way to connect with themselves through your experiences. Mm -hmm. So the first thing I want to do is run the circle, the compassion trauma circle with you, if you're all available for that, where we will expose the traumas that happened to us when we were children. Um, the reason we're doing this is men and women are not available to be in circle right now. They're isolated and they're in lockdown. So by you sharing your experience, they get to see themselves in you. And by seeing themselves in you, they realize they're not alone. And that's the first step in healing is knowing that you're part of a group, part of a community and part of this traumatic experience that we've all had. So I'm gonna read the 10 adverse childhood experiences. And as I say them, just raise your hand if they're true for you. And if you don't feel comfortable say, uh, raising your hand, that's okay. Um, there's no, no one has to come forward, but the more vulnerability we have, the more we break through of our own prisons. Mm -hmm. So are we ready to begin the compassion trauma circle? Yes. Okay. Prior to your 18th birthday, if a parent or other adult in the household often or very often would swear at you, insult you, put you down or humiliate you, or act in a way that made you afraid you might be physically hurt, please raise your hand. If a parent or other adult in the household often or very often would push, grab, slap, or throw something at you or ever hit you so hard that you had marks or were injured, please raise your hand. If an adult or a person at least five years older than you ever touch or fondle you or have you touch their body in a sexual way or attempt or actually have oral, anal, or vaginal intercourse with you, please raise your hand. If you often felt very often or often that no one in your family loved you or thought you were important or special or your family didn't look out for each other, feel close to each other or support each other, please raise your hand. If you often or very often felt that you didn't have enough to eat, had to wear dirty clothes and no one, had no one to protect you or your parents were too drunk or high to take care of you or take you to the doctor if you needed it, please raise your hand. If your parents were ever separated or divorced, please raise your hand. If your mother or stepmother was often or very often pushed, grabbed, slapped, or had something thrown at her, sometimes often or very often kicked, bitten, hit with a fist, hit with something hard, or ever repeatedly hit over at least a few minutes or threatened with a gun or a knife, please raise your hand. If you lived in a house with anyone who was a problem drinker or alcoholic or who used street drugs, please raise your hand. If a household member was depressed or mentally ill or if a household member ever attempted suicide, please raise your hand. If a household member went to prison, please raise your hand. 
So um, please, uh, with showing with your hand how many aces that you um, endured, please just show it to the, to the, um, we have eight and we have eight. So we have three people with eight, one with one and one with three. Um, so I'm just gonna give you a little bit of information about what trauma does to the brain and body, just so you can have this information as we go forward in our discussion. When, we are, when the body is traumatized, the prefrontal cortex, which is your executive function, the, the part that knows about morality, good, good or bad, the wisdom center, that shuts down. And you're in your amygdala, which is in the back of your brain, and you're, you go into fight or flight. With these repetitive stresses in childhood, you have no ability to make good decisions. You've stopped really thinking clearly, and you actually forget what you've done um, in times of stress. So knowing this, and also knowing that if you have four or more ACEs, you are seven times more likely to go to prison. I'd like to open up the, um, the discussion to all of you, and maybe we can just go around and, and see what we learned in just in this moment. Um, Eldra, do you wanna start? Uh, sure. Uh, I can definitely identify in my life where uh, traumas that I suffered as a child uh, informed how I viewed myself and how I viewed others. And, and that information then went on to dictate how I uh, showed up in the world, the impact that I had in the world, how I treated others, how I treated myself, what I thought things meant. And these are things that I formulated when I was seven, eight, nine years old. And, and, and I can see where I was, you know, in my 20s and 30s, still operating with that seven or eight year old running the show in a grown man's body. Go ahead, just guys, ch check in when, as you want, go ahead. Oh, so for me, you know, on, on the surface, I was, I went to prison largely in spite of my upbringing. I was raised in a loving two-parent household, uh, an only child by my mother. I had, I have four half brothers and half sister on my dad's side, but it was it was largely just me. And you know, you think like, why? How could someone who's you know middle class? Uh, my mom is Italian. My father was black. You know, ultimately, with that had every opportunity to succeed. How could you make a choice to participate in a series of crimes, robberies? the last of which resulted in the murder of a human being, right? And <clears throat> for me, when we're talking about trauma, sometimes it's not as, at least in my opinion, as blatant as like physical abuse or, uh, you know, being around uh, violence to some degree. But for me, my earliest memory was a fight, uh, a verbal disagreement between my parents. And I mean, I was only like four years old, maybe. And it's the first memory I have. And, and, my mom was, you know, with her Italian firebrand uh, way of being, she was getting in my dad's face and she, she, she did the unthinkable. She called him the N-word. And the way my dad jumped up and chased her down the hall, you know, she made it to the bathroom and, and uh, you know, she, she locked the door and there was, there was no actual physical altercation. There was just the threat of it. But in that moment, I recognized like what I was supposed to do if anyone did or said anything that made me seem like I was less of a person than they were. And from there on, it was like 
anytime someone tried to embarrass me or especially use that word, um, I was ready to get violent because I saw it in many ways. I was traumatized by it. Like I had never seen that type of violence in my home before or that type of threat of violence before, but I knew that that's what I had to do. And, for, and by the time I got to second grade, you know, I went to predominantly uh, white schools and second grade was the first time I had that experience with me where there was a, a, a young, young kid, young boy who, you know, wanted to make it a point that I knew that I was an N word and he would do it every day. And every day after class, I would meet him in the parking lot and we'd fight. And <clears throat> what was so traumatizing or rem like remarkable and memorable in my mind at the time, it wasn't that we were fighting because he was calling me that name. It was when his mother would pick me up and I would be crying, you know, he called me this, he called me this. She would give me the look like, that's exactly what you are. And like, those are the moments where I started forming this, this idea of how it is. And those were the moments when I started making decisions like, you know, I don't want to watch the Smurfs anymore. I don't want to watch Gilligan's Island. I want to watch, you know, Rambo. I want to, I want to watch Die Hard. And I want to hang out with the kids who are willing to get violent and willing to get tough because that's what it means to be a man. And that cycle of, of creating this worldview of what it meant to be a man and what it meant to be tough, it, it metastasized to the point that when I was 20 years old, I'm sitting in front of a house with a loaded weapon saying, let's go rob these drug dealers. And, you know, as a result of, of that, uh, serving over 20 years in prison. So, uh, and, and the, the, the real scary part is that like some of these, these experiences, like I never even thought about them as having such a huge impact on how I interpreted the world until it was almost too late. Right. And, and you're sitting in prison with a life sentence. So, uh, with that, I'm, I'm complete. You are hypervigilant. You began to be hypervigilant, which is a sign of PTSD at four years old. And that changed your brain and that changed your, you armored up and it changed how you experienced the world. Shaka, do you want to respond? Yeah, first of all, just uh, thank you so much for sharing your journey because I don't think it's heard often enough. Um, you know, I grew up in a household that on the outside looking in, looked like the ideal middle-class black family. You know, my dad was worked for the state. He was also in the Air Force Reserves. My mother was a homekeeper, uh, but it was a very violent ho household. My mother uh, would beat my older siblings often. Um, and with the with anger that was just, you know, terrifying. Um, and, you know, as I got older, she began to beat me. And it was very different though. And I think part of it was because my older siblings they're, they have a different father who my mother married when she was about 16. Uh, so she had three kids by the time she was 19 when she met my dad. And, you know, the way that she beat them and what she beat them with was different from how she beat me. She, she definitely beat me with, you know, a, a belt and left welts and things of that. And, you know, my father was complicit in it because he didn't do anything to prevent it. Um, but one of the things that I remember early on is that there was something about my dad where he knew it was wrong because whenever he was charged with administering, uh, basically ass whoopings is what we call it in the hood. Uh, if she wasn't there, he wouldn't do it. And he would just be like, you know, when she come home, act like it happened. So we had to act a part of trauma. Um, and, you know, I, I remember being asked questions over the years, like, when did you first hit the streets? 
And I would always say, you know, 13, 14 years old or whatever. Um, and then I was in a conversation. I was doing an interview. I was being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And she asked me that question. And I gave the kind of answer that I typically gave. Oh, yeah, I ran away when I was 13 or 14. And she was like, let me take you back to this moment that you write about. I'm a writer for those who don't know my work. I've written extensively about my, my life journey toward prison. And she was like, there was a moment when you were about nine years old, when you came home from school and you had done good on the test. And when you came in the house and you began to tell your mother about it, she threw a pot at your head. And my mother had threw this cast iron pot uh, with such force that, you know, I ducked, but it shattered the tiles on the wall behind me. And she was basically like, that's when you hit the streets. Um, and, and ever since that conversation, I really went back and began to examine how different I became after that moment and other moments. Um, and so, you know, I, at, growing up in that household, you know, my mother would hit me. I would go outside and get into a fight and hit somebody else. And it started this kind of cycle. And the same thing would happen with my siblings where, you know, they were always fighting each other. And, you know, we were I was always up under the threat of the violence, being the, the younger sibling and the younger step sibling. Um, so I think there was some jealousy in regards to how she treated them versus how she treated me, even though all of the treatment was terrible. Uh, nonetheless, they saw it through their own tra trauma lens. Um, you know, when I ran away from home, I got, you know, sucked into the street culture, started selling crack cocaine, you know, before we even knew the damage of what crack cocaine was. And I experienced all the horrors that come with that culture. I was robbed at gunpoint. I was beat nearly to death by three grown men. Uh, my first introduc introduction to uh, sex was through the lens of being a drug dealer and being sexually intimate with a drug addicted woman. Mm -hmm. um, and then from there, being kind of pulled into this adult world where I primarily sexually engaged with adult women, uh, you know, when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. And so, you know, the, the levels of trauma that I've experienced in my life are, you know, beyond numerous. I mean, I was shot when I was 17 years old. And, you know, the thing I remember most about being in the hospital, you know, after being shot is that nobody ever asked me how I felt or what I was thinking. And so when I went back to the neighborhood, you know, I didn't even realize, I didn't even have a name for what I experienced, but I knew how I felt, you know, standing outside and feeling vulnerable and feeling like every car that came up the block was potentially a death chariot. And so I began to carry a gun every day and I had experience with carrying guns, but it became like an obsession to the point where no matter what I was doing, I always had a gun. I mean, eating dinner, using the bathroom, you know, being in bed intimate, I had a gun up under my pillow and just, you know, one in the corner. And, you know, um, and so, you know, 16 months later, I found myself in a conflict. And, and one of the things, just to go back a little bit, after I got shot, I remember starting to tell myself this story, that if I found myself in a conflict, that I would actually shoot first. And 16 months later, nearly two in the morning, after leaving another traumatic event, uh, which was I was DJing a party and somebody got shot in front of the party. And when I, you know, packed up my equipment to leave, I was on heightened alert. 
And when I got back to my block, which was like literally right around the corner, car pulled up, you know, guy wanted to make a drug transaction that I didn't want to make. We got into an argument. That argument escalated really quickly. And then there was this moment when, you know, I decided to walk away and I turned to walk away and I heard what I thought was uh, this man getting out of the car and I turned and I fired multiple shots, tragically uh, causing his death. And, you know, I was subsequently arrested, charged with open murder, sentenced to 17 to 40 years for second degree murder, ended up serving 19 years and seven of those years in solitary confinement. And when, when I was in prison, you know, I was operating out of that trauma land. So I got into every type of fight you can think of and stabbings and, um, you know, wars on the yard between, you know, conflicting organizations. And, you know, nine years in, I caught another case, getting into a conflict with an officer. And that led to me being in solitary at that point for four and a half years straight. But it was in that environment that I really just began kind of reconciling my childhood and being honest. And, you know, I grew up in a culture where we don't often frame the beating of children through the lens of abuse. It was just like, yo, this is discipline. You get your ass whooped and, and you know, that's, that's life as a black kid growing up. And I'm sure it's like that for other communities, but I'm, you know, I can only speak from my experience and it's normalized. And so when I was in prison, sitting in solitary confinement, you know, I asked myself this question, how did I go from this kid with dreams of being a doctor to serving out my most promising years in prison? And from there, I went on this journey of journaling and I went back and I examined every act of violence that had been, you know, committed against me and every act of violence that I had committed. And I would go back and read those journals and it was almost like an out-of-body experience to realize that this was a kid that had experienced more trauma by the time I was, you know, 19 years old than most people who have gone to war. Um, you know, high levels of gun violence, you know, three of my, was three, my mother has three sons. All three of us have been shot. All of us have been in prison. A total of eight members of my family have been shot. Um, you know, so I, when I, as I began to just examine like that level of trauma and I began to talk to the men around me and realized that all our experiences mirrored each other in some way, shape, form or fashion. And, you know, I, I realized at that point that the way out of this prison loop um, is to really address the traumas that we experience and to be honest about them and to give names to these things and to not use them as weapons of shame, which is often the case. You know, even when you ask the question about uh, have, have we ever had a sexual experience that wasn't of our own, you know, thinking best with somebody five years above, you know, years ago, I wouldn't have raised my hand because that shit was normalized for us. You know, it was normal for, you know, a 13 year old boy to have his first sexual experience with a grown woman. Um, and we don't, we don't typically see that as damaging emotionally uh, or mentally in our community. And so it's something that I'm actually writing about now because I think it's so important, especially being a dad raising, you know, a nine-year-old son and understanding all the things that was taken from me as a child. Um, you know, the other part of it is um, earlier, you know, when I was listening to Eldra, 
it made me think about the stories we tell ourselves and how we begin to see ourselves through an adult lens, even though our brains aren't fully developed and we take on so much of that ownership of things that happen to us, um, you know, or, or the way that we reacted to those things based on the culture of growing up in it, where it's so normalized and there's so many young guys. I know that I've be either been shot, either shot somebody, been in jail, you know, been in these, you know, unhealthy sexual dynamics, but it's normalized and it's celebrated in this very toxic way. And so, you know, as a dad and as a mentor to many, um, and as someone who's found a pathway towards self-love, you know, it, it's really important to really call these things exactly what they are. Um, and, and you can reconcile those things. Like I've reconciled who my mother was and why she was the way she was. She came through, you know, high levels of trauma by the time she was 16. She was in an abusive marriage. You know, she had been through a lot of things. And so that opened a pathway for forgiveness. But even deeper for me, it helped me disconnect from all the negative things that I heard from her or experienced at her hands and separate that from like, that's somebody else's narrative that doesn't belong to me. And so I've had to recreate a narrative that was really about honoring, you know, the little boy that was trapped in this adult body. Thank you, Shaka. Robert. Um, you know, my story isn't unique than others. Um, I find it a little funny sometimes when people ask me, how long did I do time? I've been doing time my whole life. My father was 35 years Department of Corrections. I was an inmate before I was ever a son. Some of the common words that I'd be told as a kid is as a moron, I'm a spastic, an idiot, an imbecile. Um, the CDCR belt that they hang their cuffs and keys on, I used to get beat with that. Mm. Um, I remember, you know, the keys used to be very traumatic for me. Hearing the jingling of the keys, I could tell what type of temper my father was in that day. And we lived in a middle class uh, family, but we never had the extras. At least us kids didn't. You know, I remember growing up with two pairs of pants and three T-shirts. And if you got them dirty, boy, you got your butt whooped. Um, and, um, you know, my 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 flight or fight, uh, my flight or fight response was so in tune at a young age. I could be in one side of the house in my bedroom and the garage clear on the other side. And I could hear that motor. I could hear that motor. I could hear that garage door open. And I can, I can reflect back now and I can remember the anxiety and my heart fluttering and racing. I remember at times um, waking up at the middle of the night to get a beating because I had a stepmother who was very narcissistic. Um, she loved you when she wanted to love you, when it suited her. And um, when it didn't suit her, she was in a bad mood. It was always that wait until your father gets home. So, you know, the clock started to be um, a tool of anxiety because you start looking at that clock like, oh, shit, he's, he's coming home. Excuse my language. You know, oh, he's coming home. We're getting ready. And I, I grew up with two older siblings, two older sisters, and our love for one another is what got us through um, that abuse uh, that took place in the house. Um, my mother and my father were separated. My mother wasn't from this country. She was from Scotland. I'm half Mexican, half Scottish. And 
you know, my mother's uh, tools for coping was alcohol. And at a young age, I didn't really understood what that was. It, it became traumatic for me because my mother was always drinking. I'd have to lie to the cops because she's constantly, you know, drinking and driving and hitting things. So, you know, cops would show up at the house and I'm telling them, oh, my mom's been home all day. You know, nope, somebody must have stole our car. And I'm covering for my mom. And I had a lot of anger and resentment towards my mother later on in life. But what I didn't uh, realize, and like Shankar was saying, was that, you know, I didn't understand my mother was in a country with no family, no resources, no loved ones. And that was her coping mechanism. Although it wasn't the healthiest of coping mechanisms, that was her coping mechanism. And I had to resolve that in order to forgive her. Um, you know, I've suffered uh, losses. I've, I've been in these streets. Um, like I like to tell my youth, you know, I paid the cost to be the boss. Um, and but that in itself brings its own trauma. You know, um, growing up um, in CDCR, um, you know, um, I remember um, I was doing shoe terms before I knew what a shoe term was. I'd be grounded and isolated in my room. I remember I have a, I have a good homeboy of mine. I've known him 30 some odd years. We grew up together, same neighborhoods, ran the same streets together. I remember one time he thought that I moved away. He hadn't seen me in a year. Hadn't seen me in a year. I've been locked in my room. I go to school, I come home, do extra chores, but I wasn't, I didn't go outside. And so I learned how to self-isolate. I learned how to do time. And I was already institutionalized in my mind. My mind was already structured. My days were already structured. My father was super structured in that way. And I really started hitting these streets probably around 15, 16. Um, and then, um, you know, I turned into an adult and immediately started catching cases. Um, you know, possessions of firearms, of batteries, gang-related um, situations. And, um, you know, the one positive choice I made in my, in my career at that time was I was going to join the Marines. And I remember seeing the homeboys one last time, and we got into a big fight. Somebody got hurt, and boom, I'm locked back up. The only thing that saved me that day was the fact that I was already trying to go to the Marines, so the judge gave me an option. You can either take this to trial and you're looking at 10 to 15 if you're convicted or you can go to the Marines. And, and I went to the Marines, but I wasn't healthy inside. I was full of trauma. I was full of anger. I was full of hurt. And I loved the Marine Corps. I loved everything that I did in it, but it was a specialized tool for me to take out my anger and aggressions. And, you know, it's like uh, like everybody's saying on this panel, you have this trauma, you have these things, you can only put so much layers on them. They find the cracks to come through. Um, I turned to alcoholism. You know, again, I'm in an environment that is institutionalized. Your frame of thinking is told for you. you you're given a mission. Your job is to plan out the action. How do you do it? Boom, this is your job. Move. And, and you make that done. And um, I remember I was on a deployment and my sister, who was only four years older than me, she passed away. And um, it, it, it shook me. It shook me. She was 26 at the time. She had never done drugs, never been a part of any type of lifestyle, you know, 
traditional American dream, white picket fence, husband, kid, she's going to school, putting her, uh, and working at the same time, and she got autoimmune hepatitis, and her, her immune system has started attacking her liver, and she couldn't, um, she, she couldn't get a, a, a transplant fast enough, and, uh, you know, that really shook me, because I became angry with God, you know, how are you going to take her? I've done everything to try to kill myself without physically trying to kill myself. I put myself in situations that cause harm. I've caused harm to others. And how are you going to take this good person from me? And I became very angry again. Um, I got out of the Marine Corps um, because then my, my mind cycle started fast forwarding. Like, man, she's only 26 and she passed away. I'm 22 and I want to have a family, I want to have kids, I want to have this. And it's like, how I'm talking this fast is how my mind was going. Boom, 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 boom. I'm trying to process all these things. And I hit the streets back out here. And I didn't know how to think for myself. I remember profoundly people asking me all the time, like, Rob, what do you want to do? And me looking back, what do you want me to do? Tell me. Tell me what to do. If you tell me what to do, I can do it. But that ability to think for myself, to formulate a thought, to formulate an idea, to construct my own life, I did not know how to do that. And so I went back to what I knew how to do. I knew how to survive. And I got back into selling dope. I got back into, you know, um, uh, the street life. And what was, what was crazy about it is what put me back in there was incarceration. I went back to jail um, for a, it was, uh, a, a fight outside. It was an argument between me and a friend. I, I was drunk. The cops came and took me. And although I was already a part of an organization prior to going to, uh, to the Marine Corps, when you go to jail, they ask you who you run with. So I'm just being honest. Hey, when I was a kid, this is what I used to do. This is who I used to be with. You know, hey, but I went to the Marines and, you know, I haven't been a part of that. Well, classification puts you right where they said they're going to put you right with your own. And so I assimilated back to my environment. That's what I knew. And so then I started getting rewrapped up into into that culture and all of that culture in itself pursued, you know, perceived trauma. You know, I sold drugs. And anybody that's ever been a part of that lifestyle, that's a 24-7 operation. You trust nobody. You know, I've seen close friends that are part of that game out of jealousy or somebody's been up too many days and they're having abstract thoughts and they're getting killed. So I trusted nobody. Robert, and I brought the environment. Robert, I just want to bring it back to childhood trauma because that's, uh, that's the focus. But if you want to just tell us about... Um, maybe just wrap it up and just tell us how you, what happened in prison. If you want to just say something quick. Well, you know, so what happened in prison was that kind of caused me to deal with my trauma because where it started was, was prison. My father being who he was, I was forced to deal with the uniform. I was forced to deal with that belt. I was forced to deal with those keys and identify those triggers of trauma and then have to start self-reflecting um, in that healing process. And I'll just share this really quick. What really done it for me, what really triggered me was I only got one visit. And as we all know, 
you know, we get the first embrace and last embrace. And my daughter was five years old at the time. And I remember that our time had expired and she's hugging me and she's got her little arms wrapped around my neck. And our time has expired. Her mom's pulling her off of me and her hands are trying to hold on to her daddy. And I felt her hands slip away, her tears streaming down her face. And she started to scream, I want my daddy. I want my daddy. I want my daddy. It was at that point that I woke up and I realized that it was my lifestyle that was hurting her. It was my lifestyle that was causing her young life trauma and forced me to start working on mine. Thank you, Robert. Really great. This is a great round table. Uh, Elder, we haven't heard enough of from you. Um, so I'm going to go back to you. Um, but I also want to just bring up the idea of the normalization of violence because that's what the United States is endorsing and has supported. It's in our police, it's in our prisons, it's in our families. And my fa I thought violence was normal. I thought that, that you fought. I thought that's what you did. And it looks like for most of you, you wouldn't be alive if you hadn't, if you hadn't probably pulled the trigger first. So Elder, well, I wanna start back with you, um, but if you wanna talk more about your childhood trauma or talk about normalization or both. Uh, certainly both. I, I, I can touch on both briefly. The, when you speak about the normalization of violence, I was, I'm a product of the 70s. My dad was, uh, he was in the military as well. He was a drill sergeant in the army. So I, I, I grew up with a foot in my ass. But I also grew up traveling the world when it was the USS versus, when it was the US versus the USSR. I remember climbing under a desk for a drill, because this is what we're supposed to do when they start dropping these nuclear bombs on us. So I grew up with, with, with violence being the norm. I grew up, as Shaka talked about, with uh, uh, corporal punishment ruling the day. They, I don't even know if child protective services existed during that time. You showed out, you got your ass beat. Going to school, uh, uh, we, we used to bring home permission slips on the first day of school to have your parents sign so the teachers could kick your ass in school if you got out of pocket. You could either get it at school or you could get it at home. And oftentimes it was, you know, going to be a whole lot lighter in school than it would have been at home. Uh, what, you know, my, my childhood trauma, I'm, I'm able to point to what I refer to as, as the original sin and, 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 and being molested at the age of seven years old by a babysitter, female babysitter. And that informed how I viewed women, how I viewed relationships, how I viewed sex, that, that, that I'm still dealing with stuff from that today. And I'm married with children and, and have issues with in, uh, intimacy and being completely open. And, and that same babysitter had a brother who was a couple of years older than her. And those experience informed that moving forward in my life, if there was ever, you know, a situation where there was a top and a bottom, where there was a victim and a victimizer, I was going to be the victimizer in whatever the situation was. I was not going to be the one who was catching the losing end of it. And it didn't so much play out when I was, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, but it was in there. The seeds were in there. I was able to play that out when I was on the baseball field, when I was on the football field, and it, and it showed up as a, a, a competitive desire. But when I made the choice to go out into the streets and in, into the gutter and pick up a, a particular uh, lifestyle, I was already well suited to thrive in the gang culture. 
based on how I was raised, the discipline that was instilled by my father. It was very easy for me to maintain rules and order and structure. And, and this is how it goes. This is what the constitution is. If you do this, this is what happens. If you don't do this, this is what happens. That was nothing for me. That was how I was raised. That was what was instilled in me uh, in my household. And then the childhood trauma was just something that enabled me to be able to detach from my own humanity. It was something that enabled me to deal with people, but not see people, to see objects that were in my way from where I was trying to get. I didn't see people. I didn't even see myself or know myself as a person. You were either behind me, which meant you were with me, but if you were in front of me, you were something to be knocked down and bowled over. It wasn't a human being. So that was something that made it very easy for me to see blood and guts and all sorts of other things that, you know, a child should have thrown up seeing and, and laugh and think that it was funny. And when somebody asked, why'd you do that? My response was, I don't know, or because it was fun. This that's what, that's how my trauma informed me. This is called othering and violence is what allows racism to be uh, something that we're still dealing with. Violence, when we're, when we're violent towards another person, and I'll go back to you, Elder, I didn't mean to, but I just want to bring this point, is that violence is what creates the separation and trauma is what creates the separation. It makes us feel that we don't belong. And we look for groups that look like us so that we can feel belonging. But the truth is we all belong together. We're all in this together. And when you're hurting, I'm hurting. Um, so let's, uh, let's go around and talk about the normalization of violence in our culture, but also in prisons. Um, Chaka, do you want to say something? And then we'll get back to you, Eldra. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, growing up, I, so I'm, I'm from the city of Detroit. And, you know, the, the, I tell people all the time, like, the gun violence in Detroit is at a level that would shock most people. Um, you know, like seriously. And, and you know, I, I had this moment when I got out of prison, uh, one of my nephews got shot. And I remember standing outside the hospital and, you know, I saw all his friends with the rest in peace t-shirts from different childhood friends of theirs that I got shot. And then I saw my parents pull up and I just was like, this was at this point, this was like the fifth time they had been at the same hospital for one of us who had got shot. So it was me and my three brothers, my nephew, and then my brother-in-law. And, you know, it shows up in the culture in different ways. It just depends on how it's depicted. It like, you know, I grew up watching Scarface and, you know, uh, um, The Godfather and Miller's Crossing and, you know, all these films. And when you grow up being a victim, you know, to be able to turn around and have the power in your hands, you know, of a gun uh, to protect yourself, to make yourself feel safe. It feels like second nature because it's operating, you're operating out of survival. And that's what I was operating out of. And, you know, I was I was in a car with my brother when he got shot. Um, so that happened. I was like 15 years old. You know, my first childhood friend was murdered when I was about 14. And, you know, we had one of the bloodiest summers growing up, you know, when crack cocaine first hit Detroit, you know, the, the number of murders was just unconscionable. You know, even now people point to Chicago, um, you know, as, as just the, the level of gun violence in Chicago is just 
preposterously absurd when you think about other places. But even with that, you know, Chicago has 3 million people. Detroit has about 700,000. And so when you get into the per person thing, like it's just a different level. And so that's normal. Um, you know, the hospitals, the way that they process young men and women inside, like it's, it's just like very robotic. But deeper than that, and more importantly, is what we all have been talking about, which is the violence that happens in a household and the interpersonal violence. And, you know, I do these round tables with some of my friends. And one day, and I'll just say this last thing, is I want to leave time for everybody else. You know, having, having women bear witness to what men's experiences are is really important to disrupt the cycle of violence uh, in our communities. And, you know, I asked them often, like, you know, the, the men in my life is like, when was the first time you heard, had your heart broken? And most of them point back to the first time their mother hit them in the words that accompanied the hitting. You know, I am striking you with this force because I love you. And like, that's so confusing to the mind of a child. And, you know, I currently I have a nine year old son. I can't even imagine how different his life would be if I hit him at all, first of all, but more so if I hit him out of anger and what that would do to that young precious brain. And so I think a lot of the disruption of violence starts within, you know, the, the personal experiences. And then of course there's the systemic reality of the violence of prison. You know, it is, it is so hard to leave that place without scars. And, you know, you think about the daily indignities of never feeling safe and not in terms of like what another person who's serving time would do, but the reality is that you can be in your bunk sleep and an officer can come to your cell and say, come out so I can strip search you. And so it's this willing violation of your body that you have to be complicit in. Otherwise, it's forced upon you. Um, you know, there's many who have witnessed the, the, the force uh, you know, uh, searches of a person's body. And so your body, you never feel safe. And I realized that, you know, carrying a gun was really about feeling safe, not necessarily going out to hurt somebody, but to feel safe. And, you know, even now, like I've been free for, you know, 10 years, but imagine, you know, when the social unrest began to happen and we didn't know what was happening in the country and because I'm a felon, like I can't have a firearm to protect my home. And so those old feelings came back up of like, well, I could get one off the streets, you know? And so that it's not those conversations in our heads, they don't go away. We just manage them differently. And so I've learned to just manage what I was thinking versus what was really happening. And, you know, that's a powerful tool to have. Otherwise I would be no different than anybody else who gets out of prison and know that there's a chance to go on back uh, if I get caught with a firearm. But if I didn't kind of retool how I managed the trauma, then I would be like anybody else who comes out and say, look, I got to get a gun because it's dangerous out here. Um, and so, I, you know, I would just say to, you know, our brothers and sisters tuning in, you're going to have to do a lot of the hard work on your own. We can't rely on the system to do it. And it really starts with going back and reassigning responsibility to the narrative that you've probably carried your whole life. Like I grew up thinking I was a bad person and didn't realize like, it's not my narrative. That's a narrative that was handed down to me along with the ass whoopings that I got. 
and I had to separate those narratives from my actual narrative. And so that's the hard work. Journaling is a great, great tool. Meditation, practicing mindfulness, really bringing yourself back to the moment you're in and not the story that you're telling yourself or you've told yourself. Um, and understanding when you come home, it's going to have to double those efforts if you want to remain free. Uh, you know, those of us who have got out and become successful, it's because we've learned to manage the traumatic experiences that we've been through in a way that allows us to see ourselves um, as, as full human beings. Wow. Uh, Jason, do you want to say something about the normalization of violence, which it seems like that happened in your, in your life? Sure. So, I mean, I can speak a little bit to what Shaka was sharing about prison. I mean, you know, over 20 years of incarceration, what, what is most instructive to me is the ways in which we would normalize violence inside. Um, I actually spent my last 10 years of incarceration at an institution called CTF Soledad. And while I was there during the last three years, there was an active war between two pretty big gangs. And you know, over the course of, of this war, there was no less than 15 large scale melees, all of which I was a witness to, whether on the yard or through the window. And I mean, you know, just large scales of, of violence and people getting hurt. And what was really like for me, just sad and scary was how people would not care so much because it was so normal in there to see that type of stuff. It would be like, well, I wonder if we're going to have program today. Or you might see somebody get stabbed and say, well, am I going to be able to get to canteen? Right. And, and, and it's largely, I believe, a result of this um, attitude that or this perspective of people who are incarcerated being less than human. Many times, as Shaka was talking about, we're objectified while we're incarcerated. So those stereotypes and those ways of thinking about you know, violence being normalized from how we grew up all the way back to prison. When we get there, it's like, okay, well, this makes sense. I'm being treated like an animal, so I should behave as one, right? And, and it's, it's a very scary and uh, marginalized way of existing in this world. And, you know, for myself, only being a little close to 11 months out of prison, really, I haven't even processed all of the objectifying ways I was treated, all of the dangerous situations. I mean, I can bring to, to recollection one incident where there was a riot in every wing simultaneously. So you had COs running every which, which way, you know, they're pulling people out bleeding and it's like, okay, well, what's really happening here, right? And, and just having the space to process that, those types of, of situations that, that in many ways we just close down, close down. And uh, yeah, so, so for me, uh, just getting more in touch with what it means to be a human being, to have compassion for the next person. You know, so, so often in times we, especially in prison, we objectify each other by the color of our skin, by the, who we run with, by the color of our clothes. We're obviously objectified often by uh, officers. And, and I think it goes both ways, but I mean, at the end of the day, we're all people. And if we can find a way to get back to that, like people investing in people, people caring about people, then, you know, we could, we could work through some of these issues that we have. Thank you, Jason. And I just want to comment when you're traumatized to the level that people in prison are, we numb. And 
America's numb, basically. We can all say that we're all numb. We're all, and we don't want to deal with the violence. We don't want to face the violence. We don't want to think about solitary confinement. We don't want to think about what's going on. But that numbing allows us to get through the day. But then the, the costs are, um, we don't feel when we're hurting our children. We don't feel when we're drinking alcohol. We don't feel. And so thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Robert, what you got? You know, it is the normalized uh, of violence. And the other thing that happens is you lose a sense of empathy. Um, you know, I had no idea what empathy was. And like Jason was talking about and others, it's, I remember being in those situations like, well, damn, you know, am I getting canteen today or are we going to go to store or, you know, what, what, you know, it wasn't that you lost a life or somebody was maimed or injured or, you know, got um, uh, hurt. I remember being a part of a melee um, and we were hogtied and handcuffed out on the yard and we're laughing. We we're actually laughing. It, it didn't didn't mean nothing that one person had to be metaflighted out of out of there. It was it didn't mean nothing to us. It was just it was laughter. And, you know, that that's one of the hard parts is is when you start to realize the pain and the anguish that you feel and some that you inflicted on others because of that pain and anguish that you feel. Um, it's emotionally tolling. It is emotionally tolling um, to purge yourself uh, of that. But it, it is. We, we live in a society that is based on violence. It's based on drama. It's based on, you know, what's going to get us the most ratings. A lot of the TV shows, what we see, what we hear on, in music, let alone um, what we encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, it does dehumanize people. It dehumanizes the person in front of you. You no longer look at that person as another human being. You know, for me, I started looking at people as chess pieces and how you're going to fit on my board and who's expendable. And that's all related to trauma. And it, it, it really does um, dehumanize and, and uh, takes away your, your ability to have empathy at that time. Thank you. Um Elder, do you have something else you want to say about this before we move on to resilience? And I just want to check in on the time. Has everybody got enough time for another round? Yeah? I have to hop off in a minute. Okay. Then, uh, then um, Elder, let's, let's have um, Shaka just talk about resilience, how, how he overcame um, the trauma, and, um, you know, what's next? Yeah, thank you so much for that. And, and thank you, Elder, for, you know, allowing me time. I got to hop for another call and then get my son to his mom's and daddy life and business life. Uh, but, you know, I want to I say resilience to me is it's a muscle that we really have to exercise. You know, I think part of it, not just exercise, but it's also something we have to bring back into remembrance. You know, anybody who's endured the penal system, the street culture, um, resiliency is organically embedded in, you know, the fibers of our cells because survival is what, you know, is, is kind of like the building blocks in a way. And so it's just recognizing that these same things that allow us to survive are things that can allow you to thrive. Um, you know, your, your willingness to 
you know, be courageous in, in times of uncertainty. Like that same courage that, that requires you to run into that melee, it's the same type of courage that requires you to uh, figure out a pathway toward doing something productive and meaningful. Um, you know, those same kind of things where you recognize your own strength when you're afraid, like that happens when you're trying to build a business. And so a lot of the building blocks are already there. It's just reframing them, re-identifying them, recognize them as assets as opposed to liabilities. Uh, you know, when Robert was talking about, you know, being hogtied and, 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 and laughing, right? Um, I think that humor inside prison is a trauma response that allows us to even recognize the absurdity of what we're going through and to know that we've come out on the other side of it. And so for me, I knew it was all about one moment at a time. And one of my philosophies is if you can get through the pain of the moment, you can come out on the other side of that. But you have to acknowledge that it is a moment. It's not yesterday. It's not tomorrow. It's literally the moment that you're in. And to me, as you take a series of proactive steps to get through those moments, like you come out on the other side stronger and, you know, um, you know, anybody who's currently incarcerated, if you woke up today, you know, that's an expression of your resiliency and your willingness to survive. And so now you have to add to that repertoire of skill sets that allows you to survive so that you can actually thrive. And, you know, even when I, when I think about Jason, you know, only being home 11 months, you know, we come out and we hit the ground, we're running, we're going hard. And what I realized for myself, and I'm not sure what it's like for other people, is I went so hard when I came home. It was hustle, 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 busy, busy, busy. And I realized I was running because I was afraid. I was afraid to look in that rearview mirror for fear that I might stumble and end up back in that space, disappoint myself, let myself down. And I was running from this idea of the old me because I hadn't fully embraced, you know, the, 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 the real me. Now, I won't even say the new me, but the real me. And it wasn't until I got to a space where I was like, I'm fucking amazing. You know, I'm incredible. I'm talented. I'm gifted. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm business savvy, um, you know, and, and I'm curious. And I think curiosity was more important than all those things because I was willing to go into spaces that I otherwise would have shrunk from. You know, I'm a fellow. I've been a fellow at MIT Media Lab. I taught at the University of Michigan. Um, you know, I remember when I did a TED talk, like I was out like four years and I'm on a biggest speaker platform. And when they invited me to do a TED talk, I thought it was like Ted the teddy bear from that uh, TV show. And I didn't realize this was the biggest platform you could be on as a speaker. And I was afraid, but I, I got through the fear of that moment and I was able to come out on the other side with new language for people who was trying to help those who were incarcerated. And so I just say, you know, it's easy to have a big vision picture of I just want to get out um, and I just want to stay out. But there's also this responsibility we have to nurture ourselves in a way that says, look, I'm worthy of thriving. I'm worthy of having a home. I'm worthy of having a partner. I'm worthy of being a dad, being a mom, being an entrepreneur, being an everyday worker, whatever your thing is you have to know that you're worthy of it, you know? So I encourage you all to journal, to write it down, you know, to meditate, to filter out, you know, old narratives from real narratives um, and just to be present in the moment and know that that's the only thing that we can control.
Thank you, Shaka. Um, just, just really quick, if you can just, you talked about in one of your articles when you were in solitary, you decided, you made that decision. There, what was that decision? Well, the decision I made was based on a letter I got from my oldest son. And he told me his mom had told him while I was in prison. And I realized in that moment that, you know, I owed him a father that he can be proud of whether I was getting out of prison or not. And that's when I began my journey as a writer. And so I wrote my first book in prison. I ended up writing about four before I got out. Um, and I hustled those books out the trunk of my car all the way until one of them reached Oprah. And then I didn't necessarily have to hustle out the trunk of my car anymore because uh, the books were on shelves and bookstores all over the world. Um, but I've never stopped nurturing, you know, those books. And, you know, I'm coming up next month to be five years since Right My Wrongs was released on a major platform and it's still selling as if it just came out. Uh, and I just finished up the second book that I'm should be putting out next February that I'm really proud of and really excited about. But it all started with just taking that one step toward myself. So uh, thank you for having me. I wish I could stay longer. Uh, and thank you all for sharing your stories. And, and I'm sure we'll all be in contact. So uh, let me drop my, I'll drop my email in the major main chat just so we can stay connected. And, um, and I look forward to hearing from you and seeing how I can support anybody. Um, and yeah. Absolutely. And we're um, planning a roundtable with form, former wardens and correctional officers. And I hope you can join us for that as well. Absolutely. All right. Peace, y'all. Thank you, Shaka. Right. Okay, guys, a little more intimate. What's your time? I just want to know everybody's timing. Um, I don't want to, but I think we still have some things we need to get to. I've got, I've got about 30 minutes. For okay. Then let's, let's end it at 30. Is that okay with everyone? Um, okay, I would, I would like to get back to, I guess, should we just continue with the resilience or do you guys have anything else you want to, that we, we can talk about resilience more if you'd like. By the way, this is an amazing conversation. I'm just blown away. I mean, imagine getting this in prison, right? Sure. Sure. Okay. All right. I, I will cut that part out. <laughs> yeah. So, um, for me, you know, I, I was incarcerated in 1999. And at the time there in California, there was a lot of rhetoric, particularly coming from the governor's office on down, that the only way someone with a life sentence was gonna get out of prison was in a pine box. So starting out on a level four yard, there was no programming. There was uh, the bog waivers, the board of governor waiver for education had been suspended. So there was no way for people that didn't have financial support from their family to attend school. And it was just a real culture of despair. And you know, for me, the one thing, my, my first transformation, first transformational moment was when I saw my father cry for the first time. And that was the day that I was arrested. Uh, you know, he was one of those salt of the earth, like just never complain about much kind of guys. But when, when I committed my crime and they arrested me in his driveway, he was, he was a mess. And in that moment, I had this, this, just this very basic understanding that my decisions were never just about me that they impacted the people who I loved the most. So when I came to prison, even though I was in this, this atmosphere of like despair, I knew that I couldn't keep revisiting that pain on my family. And, you know, fortunately they did have some, some means to kind of finance my education. So I began going to college. Uh, and, you know, over the course of, of 20 years, I earned a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees while incarcerated. 
And, you know, this is largely within an environment that says that those types of things aren't possible for people. So when we talk about resilience and we talk about perseverance, right? There's a, there's a great quote that I like a lot. Um, perseverance is the hard work we do when we're tired of the hard work we've already done, right? And uh, I mean, one thing that my co-defendant, who's actually the, the executive director of the organization I work for now, would say to us while we were in prison, you know, we're building programs and we're helping people get certified as counselors. You know, we started a scholarship for a young man, helped, you know, to get him a great education, raised a little over $30,000 for his future. And, and I would say to him things periodically when I would throw those pity parties where no one would show up but myself, you know, man, you know, it's just, uh, who knows what's, what's next? When are we going to get out of prison? You know, we're sitting here with life sentences. We're doing this great work, but what if, you know, what if we die in here? And, and, and then if we do get out, you know, right now we're in this one prison, we're kind of, kind of some big fish in a little pond, but then we're going to go out there and we'll be some little fish in this big pond, this big ocean. And he would look at me and he'd say, you know what, Jay, he'd say one thing that's for sure about this experience that we've had in prison, we will always have evidence that we can do hard shit. And, and it's true, right? Like we're talking about like the traumas and the thing, the, the strategies we use to just compartmentalize the pain, the, you know, the, the terrible situations that we've encountered in our lives. But at the end of the day, what one thing we definitely have is plenty of evidence that we can do hard stuff because it's hard. It ain't easy living in a six by nine with another grown human being where your, your, your kitchen and your bathroom are, are linked together on one you know, silver bullet, right? Um, it's just... But, but when, you, when you look at it from that lens, from that vantage point, like I have done hard stuff, right? Then literally the sky is the limit. And, and much like Eldra's background, like that's when, for me at least, the cage becomes this bird and like, okay, I, I have freedom here. I have freedom. So. Wow. Eldra, you wanna take this? Certainly. Uh... Resilience, resilience. Uh, Shaka hit on hit it on uh, hit on it for me, and, and and it really resonated. The piece about the relationship with self. For me, you know, resilience was not something that I was in great relationship with until I was able to really be open and authentic with who I really was and embrace the parts of myself that I had been running from for so long. There are a lot of parts of me that, you know, I'd be willing to show the world and, and stand up and highlight. But those parts that I like to keep in the closet and, 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 and keep in the dark and hiding up underneath the bed are parts as well. And they deserve love. They need to be embraced. They deserve to be integrated into the whole. Because if I don't honor that, if I, when I fail to honor that, they find other ways to show up. They will be heard. They will demand and get attention. So it's about me integrating those parts and being in relationship with those parts and not trying to get rid of them or make them bad or judge them, but just recognizing where they have served. These, you know, these traumas that, that, that we're talking about and these parts of self that have showed up in a very uh, self-destructive way, they were born in a situation and a time where, where they served a purpose. They helped me survive. They helped us all survive. And so it's about honoring those parts for helping seven-year-old Eldra make it through that situation that would have broken most people. It's just about recognizing where that part of me can or cannot serve today. That part does not get to drive the car. It's still a part of the whole. He just doesn't drive the car. 
I'm not trying to exercise him and, and, and send him off to hell somewhere. He deserves love. He deserves honor. He deserves respect because he served in a very important part of my life. He, he, he served in a, at, a, at, a, at a stage where uh, I was in crisis and he stepped in in the lurch where I didn't know what the hell to do. And, and he went into action. I am now more equipped to deal with my life and to deal with the situations in my life. So, you know, he can take a rest now. He can go kick back on the beach inside himself. And, and, and I got this. And, and for me, that's where resilience comes in. It comes in and, and recognizing that, like Shaka said, I'm, I'm, I'm good enough. Not only am I good enough, but, you know, uh, uh, Jason just said it, you know, talking about making it through some tough shit. In certain instances, I'm the shit. I've done and been and, and survived and made it through some things, man, with some of my peers. And, and I've watched some commit suicide. I've watched some, you know, uh, uh, get into the pill line and they're still to this day doing the Thorazine shuffle because their minds broke because they couldn't handle what was in front of them. They couldn't handle what the reality was. So they looked for an alternate reality. So for me, resilience is about being willing to overcome that fear. And, and the fear that I'm talking about is the fear of myself. The fear that I'm talking about is the fear of looking at who I am and starting to heal those parts. That for me is what resilience looks like. And when was that moment when you made that decision? Hmm. For me, the, the for me, the moment was uh, when I was in Corcoran. I was in the shoe. Uh, I got sent there from Solano. Me and one of my homeboys had uh, attempted to kill another inmate. And, and I was on standalone walk alone. And, and the half of the building that I was in, the other half was PHU. And I'm watching Sirhan Sirhan and Charles Manson go out to the yard with other people. And in my mind, my ego is telling me, Oh, these two mother lovers are way worse than I am. Why, why are they letting them out around other people? You know, I've only done this. I've only done that. That's Charles Manson. That's Sirhan Sirhan. And, and so I started to look in the mirror and think about all of the opportunities that I had in my life and where I could have gone and started to see that I was my own worst enemy. It wasn't because Pookie snitched. It wasn't because this cat did this or this cat did that. It was because of this, the decisions that I was making continued to put me in a screwed up situation. It was what I was choosing to do. It wasn't about the homeboys. It wasn't about the guards. It wasn't about the state of California. It wasn't about uh, 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 my mama not buying me a dirt bike. It wasn't about some weirdo uh, creeping out on me when I was a kid. It was about what I chose to do with those things. It was about what I chose to do with what I was given, which takes me back to what you said about you know the traumas uh, that children suffer and the traumas that we've all uh, been a part of in prison, growing up in the culture, in the culture that I grew up in, you kept your mouth shut. And I didn't learn that in the streets. I learned that in, in my house. Don't take what happens in this house, outside this house, embarrassing me, boy. You get indoctrinated with that as a child. So when I was assaulted as a child, I already knew to keep my fucking mouth shut. Mm. So I didn't communicate. My parents found out about that when I was 30 something years old and we were sitting in the visiting room in Folsom. 
That's when they heard about what happened to their little boy, because I had already been indoctrinated into a culture of keep your mouth shut. So by the time I got to the pen and the lifestyle that I was living, that was just the way of being. Uh, my brother here talked about laying out on the yard and being hogtied and laughing about what happened. We laugh about it because we can't talk about it. Now, if I talk about what just happened, I'm a snitch. Now, what just happened to him is going to happen to me. So we're going to do anything under the sun other than talk about what just happened. Right. And that's why we're talking right now about what happened. That's why we're talking about it. And that's what needs to happen in the community all over these prisons. And that's my hope. Thank you, Eldra. Amazing. Um, Robert, tell us. Tell us about what made you shift. What's your resilience strategy? My resilience strategy was, like I talked about before, was my little girl. Um, I had two kids at that time. Um, my oldest one was five. Um, my youngest was six months when I went away. So she didn't grow up with me. She didn't have that collective bond with me like my five-year-old. Um, that was that shift, that, that visitation. Um, when I seen that I broke her heart when I seen the tears and her screaming for me, um, that shattered my shell. And my wheels started spinning in another direction. And, you know, I, I've, I've spoken, at, you know, at paroles and PAC meetings and this and that, and I've said it in front of law enforcement that if you do something to my child, there's not enough law enforcement in the world to stop me from getting to you. I will get you. The truth of the matter is, nobody was doing anything to my kids except for me. Every time I chose to leave, every time I chose to sell dope, every time I chose to do dope, every time I chose to do everything other than be a father, I was hurting my kids. And I had to go through that revelization of, I'm doing this, I'm hurting my kids. And the truth is, is that they are the purest thing I've ever added to this world. No matter what good I've done in this world, and I have done some good, they are the purest thing I have ever brought into this world. These kids did not ask to come here. We brought them here. And I had that, I, I had that realization and it just really turned it away. And I made a promise to them that you will never shed another tear because of my choices. Never. You will never shed another tear because of your daddy's choices. And when I couldn't love myself, because let's be real, we didn't love each other. We didn't love us. We didn't know what self-love was. That was cosmetic. We're looking in the mirror. Yeah. Man, I look good. Yep. Loving me today. That's that cosmetic thing. I'm talking about when you're alone and you're looking in the mirror and you're seeing your reflection and you're looking eye to eye with yourself and you're looking at the depths of your soul and you're really just reliving your life that pain that you feel, that hurt that you feel, the things that you don't talk about and you just keep stuffing. That's that, un, uh, that, that love you don't have for yourself, that anger, that hurt that you have for yourself. I held on to my kids. And I tell people, if you don't have kids, hold on to that one person. We 99.9% .9 of the time, you have one person in your life, whether it was a teacher, an auntie, a grandma, a mom, a dad, whoever it is in your life, that always seen you for the purest thing that you were, you hold on to them until you can learn how to love yourself. 
And that helped, that helped me to find my resilience, to help me to, to, to pick myself up when I wanted to quit. When I, and I'd look at my little girl's faces and be like, who's going to be there for them? Do I want another man to raise them? Do I want them to potentially go through what I went through? And I refuse to allow that to happen because coming out here, and I think Jason said it and Eldra said it, this game ain't easy. It's not. But the one thing that I share with people and those that are listening, and I hope they listen to this, is that the game doesn't change. The board does. The board that you play on changes. That same game, that same hustle, that same drive that you did dirt in the streets to not get caught, to make your money, to do this, to do that, all that work ethic that you did in street life, if you apply that to the next board, you're doing something positive, you're unstoppable. You are unstoppable because I guarantee you the other side of the people that have never experienced this side of life, they don't have that same work ethic as you do. You have survival instincts, you have street instincts, and you have education. You are unstoppable, and that is your resilience. Turn your trauma into triumph. Amazing. Thank you. I'm going to wrap this part of the conversation up, and then I want to have a quick conversation about solitary, okay? If that's okay, but that's a separate, that's going to be a separate thing. Um, so I wanna thank you all for joining our roundtable discussion about childhood trauma. I hope you will come back and we'll find more things to talk about and um, more ways to bring um, our knowledge and our experience to the men and women living in prison right now. Um, do you all wanna sign off with a last thought? Uh Last thought that I would have for anybody who uh, may have the opportunity to uh, listen to this conversation is uh, believe in yourself, invest in yourself. Forget what everybody else is talking about. Be willing to step out on that ledge, be a trendsetter, be a man, be a woman and show everybody else around you how to do it because they want to be able to do it. They just don't know how. Sure. So be the model. Um, for me, uh, what I would want to leave people with is something my father told me before he passed. I was, uh, I was actually on a visit with him and I was kind of whining. I was in my second year of incarceration and I was telling him, you know, I got 24 more years until they're going to think about letting me out. And he looked at me and he was just real serious. And he said, look, son, he said, I, and he said, I want you to look at me. He said, I want you to know that it doesn't matter if it's 24 years, 24 months, 24 weeks, or 24 days. The only thing you have is this moment. That's it. So make the very most of this moment every day, every moment of your life. And that's my encouragement for people who are incarcerated. Make the most out of these moments because that's all we really have. There's, there's always something positive and productive for you to throw yourself into, to learn about yourself, to add value to the community there and beyond. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Robert. Um, you know what I would hope everybody would get, and I'm going to leave it with what a lifer told me um, when he got at me is, Robert, if you always do what you've always done, you're always going to get what you've always got. Change it. Change it. And he helped me realize you are the master of you. Nobody is the master of you but you. 
You're in control of your decisions. You are in control of your emotions. Do not give anybody that power over you. Be the master of you. And these things are life lessons, not a life sentence. So set yourself free. And with that, we conclude our roundtable for Trauma Talks. Thank you all for participating. Oh my God, you guys, thank you so much. I'm continuing to record because one of the things we're doing at Compassion Prison Project is we're really uh, starting to question why there's solitary confinement. Mm -hmm. Um, 50% of the people that are homeless have been in solitary confinement. And so I wanna talk, I would like for each of you to tell how many years you've spent in solitary, what you noticed about your your mental states, your physical states, and um, some of the, the offenses that were done in the solitary environment, because you've all, have you all done solitary? I did 79, 79 days in the hole, but yeah. Okay, I'm gonna say something, just so you know this. More than 15 days is considered torture according to the Nelson Mandela rules. And what happens after seven days in solitary, your, the EEG um, starts, starts diminishing, your brain waves start diminishing. So you can just slough it off at 79 days, but it does damage. And so that's what we need to start talking about. It's not just 79 days, but I mean, this is serious stuff. This is serious stuff they're playing with and there's no accountability. And, uh, and there's gotta be accountability to put somebody in that kind of situation there should be a trial because otherwise, otherwise we're creating, we're creating more damage in our, in our communities and in our society. And so mm-hmm. they got to start knowing that their prison is creating crime. Prison is creating recidivism. It's mm-hmm. not the people now. The people who did the crime when they came in, that's one thing. But coming out, that's on us. That's on us. So um, it may not be that much, Jason, but it's still something. So. Uh, let's start with Robert, and uh, we'll just go around. Um, you know, um, isolation, uh, going to the hole, solitary. Um, that's where I first landed right when I got to reception. Right from reception, I was put into ADSEG, solitary confinement, um, because I was a security concern. Um, it's amazing at how much the body can take, the mental can take. You learn to self-isolate. Um, I remember enjoying it, it. It would get to the point initially, you know, you want to you want to contact. You're at the window. You're looking at this. You're trying to see, you know, what movements going on. You know, what's you know the conversations that are going on, fishing underneath the door. Um, to the point where you become at peace with that six by nine. It becomes your whole um, safety net. You know, I remember they wanted to bring me a, 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 a celly and I have to interview them at the door. No, you ain't coming in. And I would tell the guards, you bring them in. You won't take them out. I promise you. And I became my own beast and I enjoyed that power. It was the power that they were giving me. You couldn't bring anybody in my cell without my permission. 
and they would bring them to the door, bring them up to the glass for me to interview them. Now, I'm away from my door. You know, and I remember, I think uh, Elder was saying it, or, or uh, maybe it was Jay, you know, those standalones, you know, being walked out to the yard. And I remember that bravado, you know, I'm thinking in my head, I made it. Look at me. I'm being put out into a cage. And I'm thinking, excuse my language, I'm thinking this is the shit. Well, I made it. What they got me in cuffs. They I gotta be escorted. I'm going to the cage by myself. And I'm thinking, this is like me in Las Vegas sitting in a suite right now. You know, that's the warpness of my mind. That's you know how distorted we think our value is, is that that's achieving something. That's achieving status right there. That we've done this type of time. And, you know, uh, what I've learned was it was a fallacy. You know, our, our organizations that run these prisons that say there's segregation, you can't talk to this person, you can't talk to this person, you can't dine with him, you can't take this, you can't take that. I've seen it in solitary confinement, sharing food, sharing a book, sharing this, sharing that. It was a fallacy. And seeing some of those revelations of um, indoctrinations uh, of, of things, um, then you start to question what is, what is really real anymore. And, you know, um, how to re-socialize again, um, because that's what isolation really takes you away from, at least for me, is how do I re-socialize again? It took me a long time a very long time to learn how to re-socialize. How long? In all honesty, I got out in 2011. I didn't really learn how to re-socialize again and I still haven't. I'm good at going to work. I'm good at doing certain things, but I still do time in my house. Don't get me wrong. I go on trips and I do little things, but my comfort zone is my house. I can do time in there. I can sit in there and I can be fine. I remember when I first got out just really quick. We still had pay phones. They weren't all gone yet. But I remember I was walking down the street. I was I was only out two weeks. And um, can, we, can you hold it? Because uh, Jason has to leave and then we'll come back to you. I'm so, I'm I lost time again. I'm sorry, Jason. But go ahead. Tell us how long you've been and what your experiences were, if you can. Sure. So, um. Uh, in 2007, I served 79 days in solitary in the hole in ADSEG. At the time, uh, I was put there for having an illegal cell phone. And that's really not an ADSEGable offense. That's, um, according to their rules, that's actually um, contraband. It's a, it's a lesser write-up, however wrong it is and however dangerous they may be. Uh, but they were using that as a way to, they're using the whole or a segregation as a way to strip people of their worker status and just punish them for not following the rules. And for me, the, the most, um, uh, I remember that it was about three weeks in. I was about three weeks in when I started talking to myself. And like looking back, I think about it like, oh, it's funny. It's funny. Like I was talking, having conversations with myself, but the reality was I was so lonely like, like we're social creatures and, 
and we're meant to be in community with people. And, and I was isolated, like for real isolated. Like, I mean, like the lights would come on at like five o'clock in the morning and they'd slide a tray in and then that was it. And then it was just me alone. You know, every, every two or three days, I might be lucky to go out to a dog kennel where there were other people in other dog kennels, but there's no real interaction. It was like, there's a machine out there because of the, you know, the prison politics. It was like, okay, it's, it's the woodpiles turn to do their, their machine. And then the brothers are doing theirs. And then the, the Hispanics are doing theirs, but there's not real social interaction. It's like, we're working out and we're doing it like a military type thing. And then you go back to your cell and, and it's lonely. And it's like, what the heck? So, uh, you know, it was, it was 79 days. I say, I, I say that it, it was a short amount of time compared to some of the stretches that I know people have done, especially in the shoes. I know people who've done 20, 30 years in shoe. It's crazy, ridiculous amounts of time uh, to be isolated like that. But, but it, was, it was definitely one of the loneliest times of my life, those 79 days. And when you got back to society, what happened? Like, what was your transition like? When I got back into the general population. So it was, it was, a. Uh, it was strange. I, like literally from ADSEG, <clears throat> I transferred to another institution. That's when I transferred to CTF. I, I was coming from old Folsom. I went to CTF and it was just strange. I mean, I was, I was in reception getting processed in and it was, it was weird not being handcuffed because anytime I went to the shower, went to the, to the, to the yard, I had been handcuffed for the last 80, 79 days everywhere I went. And then it's like, okay, well, your handcuffs are off you and you can walk around, you know, with, you know, relative freedom. And it just, it felt awkward. It felt strange. It was parallel to my experience. The first time I went on a family visit, which they gave us back our family visits around 2017. And the first time I got into a van without restraints on, I'm like, what the heck? I'm in a car and I don't have leg irons on. This is, this is weird. It was weird. And I, I didn't anticipate the weirdness, but it was very strange to be in a car without leg restraints and, and, and handcuffs on. I mean, being treated almost like a human. What a concept. Almost. Almost. Mm. Okay, Jason, uh, anything thank else you welcome. want to say? I, I just want to say thank you. It's been, it's been a real honor to be a part of this call and, and to share my experiences with you gentlemen and, and, and Fritzy and, and to hear your stories. It's, it's been really powerful. Um, I think you you have my my email. Please feel free to to contact me and 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 you know I look forward to supporting you guys in your work and hopefully you'll support us in ours as well. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Okay, Robert, we're gonna get back to you now. Finish up your story and then we get to to Elder and then we'll get going. And I'm sorry, guys, for going so long. It's okay. Um, you know the the transition home, um, like I was saying. So. You, you triggered me on something when you were talking to Jason, what was it like to come home? I remember first coming home to Stockton and my sister wanted to take me to the mall. And at that time, there was a lot of movement in the malls. And I remember my anxiety through the roof. I had my back to the wall. I'm like, I lasted less than five minutes. You need to get me out of here. You need to get me out of here now. Let's go. Um, and, um, you know, parole had put me in a, um, a halfway house. A, uh, they put me into a behavioral modification program. Um, and I had a walk from this house to the bus stop. And I'm like, and I remember talking to the parole agent. I'm like, you know who I am, right? You're putting me in the wrong neighborhood. And you want me to walk from here to here? Oh, y'all set me up. And, you know, 
you're going to have to find a way. And I remember um, I liked myself. I'm now living in this house that I have to live around other men in that type of population. Like we're all integrated and I didn't like it. I liked myself. I liked my privacy. I liked being able to know that door is shut. And um, I remember I lasted about two weeks and I'm walking down the street and I call my sister from a payphone, um, my older sister. And I'm telling her, I, I can't do this. I'm ready to quit. I want to go back. I want to go back. And, you know, um, prison is, is traumatic. And, and there's a lot of things that happen in there, but there's, there's some things that make prison very easy. You don't have to pay rent. You have a roof over your head. You have a radio if you're privileged. You have a TV if you're privileged to have one. You have the ability to go to canteen. You got hustle. You got this. You got that. I had everything, almost everything I needed. Except when I was out in this world, I was always afraid. And um, it was getting through it, though. You know, um, the one thing that I that I share about that was in order for me to get past it, I had to go through it. I had to I had to face those fears and I had to start believing in myself. But, the, you know, just being in solitary, it, it really changed me to where I wanted self isolation. Like Jason said, we are naturally socializing creatures where it took me to a place that I didn't want to socialize with anybody. And even to this day, my circle is very small. Very, very small. That's solitary. That's okay, Elder. Please uh, give us a little more. I hope you can stand by to listen to Elder's story, and we'll we'll wrap it up. Uh, solitary. Uh, I, I, I did about four years total in solitary. Uh, the longest I ever did in any one stretch was uh, two years, and. Uh, I, I was somebody that was, again, you know, I, I had a military background, so I had a militant stance towards solitary confinement. And it was, you know, the government and the state of California, they were the enemy. And, and there was a lot of propaganda and paraphernalia going around about what solitary was and, 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 and the sensory deprivation programs and how they had taken uh, lessons learned in the Vietnam War era. POW camps and built Florence, Colorado and took that model and built Pelican Bay shoe and designed all of these ad seg uh, programs. So for me, it was more about uh, you're not going to break me. It was a battle of wills, So I took it as a challenge. And so it was a very militant uh, activity for me. And, 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 and it was always it was a, a warlike mentality. It was preparing for war out on the main line. There was always this this militaristic sort of thing, preparing not just for the next melee or riot, but preparing for the whole to be mentally ready, to be physically ready, because when you get back there, shit is on another level. Because at that time, they were sending cats out to the yard for uh, uh, cockfights and different things like that. I can remember one time being in, in the hole in Corcoran and, and getting escorted back to the cell. 
And and luckily for me, I'm rail thin, always have be, hopefully always will be. So the guard is walking. He's on the outside. We're up on the second tier. He's on the outside along the rail. He's got me in next to the doors. And you got these little nine millimeter size holes in the doors. And as we're walking, I see this cat shadow. He's got the door. He's, the, the lights are off, but I see a shadow in the crack of the door. I know what's up with him. And uh, as we get up to him, he hits the door. Spear comes out. I, I see him when he makes the move. And I kind of like do the bump with the officer, get over here on him. Dude's hand hits the, uh, uh, hits the door. He misses me. Me and the officer, we both look. We see it. We both just keep on walking. This cat's got a spear in his cell. I know it. The cop knows it. We all know it. And we just keep right on walking. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. And that's just the way it is. You bite into that stuff. That is the culture. Again, it goes back to the silence. And, 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 and I normalize. I was able to normalize and rationalize. This is just what it is. This is just how it is. I can remember being in the hole in the, in the middle of summer and the only units that had air conditioning were the mental health units. So the, 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 the J cats had air conditioning. I'm in the hole. We don't have air conditioning. So I developed a routine to be able to regulate my body. I would wait until 11, 12 o'clock after that, that uh, uh, in between the first, count for first watch and their second watch, knock down three, four, 500 burpees, get butt naked, take a bird bath. So I could run my temperature way, way up. And then it would come down and I could tolerate the heat. So I would adapt and come up with different things like, and then sleep with my bare feet on the cold steel toilet. So I could put myself to sleep. These are the sorts of things I, I used to develop in my brain in order to survive. So isolation for me was really about survival and creating mental constructs to be able, you know, once again, based on my trauma, to be able to defeat my enemy. And the enemy that I, you know, uh, chose at that time was the government and this system. Amazing. Talk about resilience. <laughs> and, and coming home, what was that like? I mean, did, do you think solitary had an effect on how you reintegrated? Uh, I'm certain that solitary had an effect on how I reintegrated an incarceration period. You know, I'm still, you know, here now six years out adjusting and probably will be until the day I die. I've, I've, you know, had the opportunity to fly around the world since I've been home, you know, going to Amsterdam and, and, and going all across this country. And, and I'm able to look at myself and laugh about the institutionalization and how it shows up sitting in a restaurant, you know, up. 40 stories above downtown and the restaurant is spinning around and they're serving all sorts of stuff that I can't even pronounce. And, 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 and the waiter or the waitress comes and, and, and is serving somebody who's sitting at the table with us and reach across to go give them something. And the first thing that pops in my mind is this stupid motherfucker. Don't you know that'll get you stabbed in prison for reaching over my shit like this? This is what's going on in my mind. And I'm sitting here with CEOs and business people and, 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 and things like that. But that shit is there. The difference today is, is that I'm able to manage it. I don't act on it, but, I, but it's there. I see it. I recognize it. It's in there embedded deep because I was that old so much longer than I've been this. Yes, but that's childhood trauma too, right? 
that's there too. Like you said, that seven-year-old is still there. Yeah. But that's the thing. That's the key is to learn to manage these impulses. But if you don't have access to here, you don't have, you don't have a, a, a chance. All right, you guys, all right, anything else you want to say before we wrap today up? But there's going to be more. I can tell this, this is vibrant. No, ma'am. Um, this is an absolute blessing. Um, I'm available. Um, please let me know. Um, Eldred, thank you for sharing your story and everybody else that was on here. Absolutely amazing. Um, you know, it's real inspiration to see those where they've what they've gone through, where they've come from, and where they're at now, um, you know, it really does help empower those that are traveling the same footsteps that we have. That um, they can see success, um, that it is obtainable, and that it is reachable, no matter what mistakes you've made in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Truly, truly. I want to get the work. Elder was in this film called The Work, and I want to get that film and put it in prison. Has it been seen in prison? Uh, I don't know if it's, I know they've showed it in Folsom because it was filmed there. I don't know if it's been anywhere else. Yeah, I think this needs to be part of it. And, and, and Shaka's interview with Oprah and Jason was on television with Lisa Ling. I don't know if you know that. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, and Robert, when you're on television, let us know. We'll put you in there too. <laughs> uh, I appreciate it. I have a, I do have a couple of small things. Um, I was a part of a, documentary called gang love Perfect. um it's on youtube it's called gang love um adam yabara actually did it um and then i actually did a clip with uh abc 10 um news uh office of violence prevention um i was on there talking about my story as well um just kind of where i came from where i got to um and i think they've I forget how they titled it, but, you know, one uh, something along the sides of one man's journey to um, never go to jail again or, you know, giving back to the community, something along those lines. So I have been fortunate to, to be in those types of arenas, luckily, to share some stories. Look, we all everyone has been in on television, so we'll, we'll get it all. I hope to gather some of it for everybody. Maybe I'll do a little intro of you guys. So if you can send me that clip, that'd be amazing. Um, Okay, well, off to your off to your lives again. I will summon you again. <laughs> Great to meet you, Robert. Likewise, truly a blessing. Thank you. Yeah, keep doing what you're doing, man. We're gonna cross paths somewhere out here doing this. Yes, sir. We will. Yes, sir. Yes. All okay, right. and I will take send you guys a link to this if, so you can take a look. Okay. 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 All right, Thank guys. You. Lots of love. Thank you so much, Elder Jackson III, Shaka Senghor, Robert Mosqueda, and Jason Bryant for your honesty, your courage, and your vulnerability. Your strength and ability to share what happened to you as a child is helping transform our world. Coming forward with our childhood traumas instead of keeping it bottled up and in shame makes a difference to the people watching this. And I hope for the people watching and listening to this that you'll find places where you can come forward with what happened to you because nothing's wrong with you. Um, what happened to us injured our brains. I'm so grateful to be sharing this during Child Abuse Awareness Month that um, child abuse injures your brains. 
injures your child's brains. And once we know that our brains are injured, we can begin the healing process. If you enjoyed this conversation, please go to our website at CompassionPrisonProject.org. Please share this conversation, subscribe to our channels, and um, donate or volunteer with us at Compassion Prison Project. Thank you so much for watching, and I'll see you next time.